Welcome to the latest episode of the MarTech Alliance Marketing Technology Book Club. I'm the founder of the MarTech Alliance and your host, Carlos Doughty. Today I'm joined by Tom Fishburn to chat about his really fun book, Your Ad Ignored Here. This is obviously a little bit different to what we ordinarily do because we will be looking at cartoons versus reading. So Tom is the founder of Martoonist, a cartoon studio focused on content marketing. He has 20 years in the, in the marketing trenches and his cartoon have grown to reach several hundred thousand marketers every week. He's also a keynote speaker, having delivered sessions for the likes of TED, South by Southwest, Google, and many, many more. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. So your book spans 15 years of cartoons. What was the process like? How could you go about making the cut? That must have been a lot of work and a, and a, a tough job. It, it was. It was also a lot of fun, actually. I had a chance to, to really take a step back and look at all the cartoons I'd created over the years. And it's interesting. The last 15 years has been an interesting history ban of marketing. And so it gave me a chance to take a step back and look at some of the bigger themes. Of course, I had some favorite cartoons over the years, but I also wanted to make sure I reflected some things that came online all of a sudden, like the emergence of social media and data-driven marketing, all of those things that affect us so much. I wanted to make sure that some of the cartoons represented that. So I took a step back and thought about what stories I wanted to tell and which cartoons really jumped out at me. And I deliberately decided to do the cartoons sequentially so that anybody who's been around marketing for that period of time can sort of enjoy, it's almost like a flip book of the, the history of marketing in, in, in 15 years. You kind of go through it and you see all these things emerging and we marketers having to figure out how to grapple with those issues. Do you have an actual favorite? Is there such a thing? You've got some fantastic stuff. I've got to say my, my favorite is your marketing dashboard. I love the, the touch on how we play around with vanity metrics and we look at these dashboards which mean nothing because no one's checked under the hood to, to add up the numbers to ensure they're right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's, there's so many things that usually, and usually my cartoons do come out of some sort of, I don't know, some sort of pain point or something that I've experienced personally. I think probably my favorite one is uh, there's a cartoon I, I drew with a bunch of dogs around the conference table and they're all looking up at one of the dogs presenting and the dog's saying, we need to stay focused on our marketing priorities and not get distracted by every shiny new, look, squirrel, and all the dogs turn around and look out of the window at the scroll going by the window. And I think that shiny new object syndrome is definitely something I, I, I have done personally. And it's something that I see as one of the, you know, continu a continual thing in marketing. I was going to ask you about that, actually. How bad are we for shiny objects? I, and I've got to, I've, you know, I've got to confess myself. Yeah, I, I've definitely been distracted at times, you know, it's, especially in recent years where, where marketing's in this space where things move so fast and there is a thing, a tool, a platform, a something you can play around with and have some fun and and get distracted completely from actually what really matters. Exactly. I think that's a very common thing. I think there's a good aspect to that, which is, you know, I think people are going to marketing often like seeing what's coming next. You, you don't want to be kind of mired in the status quo. So it's good to always keep your eyes open for what for what's coming. But the downside of that is that oftentimes we get we get distracted. We get distracted. We sometimes put that that shiny new thing before the strategy. Sometimes, you know, it can be very easy to say, oh, we're going to be, we're just going to jump on Snapchat and it, and it prevents you from thinking about the real fundamentals of what you need to be thinking about as a marketer. And so there's a trap there. Fun to talk about those things, but when you go to a marketing conference and then it's only about the shiny new things, it sometimes seems like window dressing and not really addressing like fundamentally how brands operate and more strategic shifts that have to happen. I, I know exactly what you mean. We run an event and we were doing the quite, you know, quite traditional approach to the end of an event and we did the predictions in the future of, and one of our panelists turned around and when everybody's just sorted 
out their shit from 2010 before they think about anything in the future and new technology that it also happens as well. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we talk about, I mean, the shiny thing object gets you know, discussed before if there's really a broad understanding of what it actually means. There's definitely a case of buzzword bingo that happens in marketing. And I think, and I think it's a particularly important deal as marketers try to figure out what their role is within, you know, more broadly within the organization, because if we're able to talk into a bubble under ourselves, but not able to reach out to all the other functions in an organization, our impact is a lot more limited and we don't have the credibility that we need or that we could have, I think. And so sticking a little bit on that point, I suppose, I think what's abundantly clear to me is you have a grasp, maybe it feels a little bit buzzwordy to, to call it this, but I think you, you have an, such an understanding for content marketing, ultimately storytelling, and even obviously right through to the sort of services you work with in your business is that your ability to, to deliver branded content in such an amazing, engaging way is so unique. What is it that you're seeing when it comes to content marketing and ultimately how it's delivered that possibly others are sort of wrestling with? Yeah, I think that there's huge potential here. I also often have to watch this too, because content marketing marketing itself can become a bit of a buzzword. And there, there, I, I struggle with even that term because it, it's so applied quantity of we just need to create a whole bunch of stuff and feed the beast as opposed to taking a step back and thinking, what are we creating this that could be actually a value to an audience we're trying to reach? And one of the things I love with the medium of cartoons is that it's really, really accessible. And you can use the fact that there's a laugh and there's a sense of humor as a way to convey a story that the audience really doesn't feel like they're being marketed to because it's you're ultimately, at least the way I try to think of the campaigns that I work on, I try to think of what pain points the audience actually experiences and then create cartoons around those pain points so that we laugh collectively at those and it brings the brand along into the conversation. And so it found that it's a really unique medium that way. You know, the longest running campaign I've been working on with a company that, that's been publishing a cartoon every week for the last eight years. And there are not a lot of marketing campaigns that last eight years. So it kind of is a reflection, I think, of when you create something that the audience really values, they want to see more of it. And it sort of grows and extends over time. And so I've, I've just, as, as a cartoonist, it's been something I love about the medium. And, and it's been fun for me as someone working in marketing to think about how cartoons can work within this medium. But I think that a lot of times when people, when brands think about, oh, we need to create a whole bunch of content, it's about turning on the fire hose. And that's created a tremendous amount of clutter and makes it even harder and harder to actually breakthrough to that audience. I completely agree. I think, yeah, we, we obviously, the opportunity for trying to get search visibility gets into this world of, yeah, quantity over quality as well. I'd, I'd love to understand a little bit of what's your creative process when you're cartooning? How do you bring about just so many fantastic cartoons that really, really, really resonate? And I suppose the frequency at which you do this, I mean, are you do you get to a point, you, do you also get kind of, I suppose, do you get that block? Do you hit that really tough point? I, that used to be my biggest fear, actually. I mean, back in the early days of doing this, I just was drawing one cartoon a week. I had a marketing day job. And it was pretty easy to have one cartoon idea a week. I could just sort of wait for inspiration to strike. I'd be in a certain meeting and somebody would say something. I'd think that would make a good cartoon to riff on. And then I'd have a few days to let that percolate and then I'd draw it. But suddenly when I started doing this full-time a little over eight years ago, I had to completely reshift my, my process because my output had to be so much higher. And so I studied a lot of how different artists of various stripes work and how they're most productive creatively. And I ended up designing a whole process that works for me. I, it helps me to, to think about breaking up the creative process into stages. There's sort of the, the super blue sky, brainstorming, no idea is a bad idea kind of stage. There's a refinement stage. 
and then there's sort of the, the inking and how you represent this visually stage. And it helped me at least to, to break up the times in the day when I can do each of those different stages. And so I, I usually, you know, as far as coming up with ideas, I usually block the first few hours of a workday just focused on that. And that's all about deep thinking time and trying not to have any distractions. So, you know, turning off any devices, you know, no conference calls, having headphones on with music, you know, completely trying to lock into at least a two hour span that I can just play and explore and surround myself with stimulus to work off of. So if it's one of my regular marketing cartoons, I, I think I, I usually have a few leaping off points already defined or some articles I've read. If it's client work, I, I packets of things that I've prepared as stimulus for those campaigns. And then I use that two hours just to riff and play with ideas. And then I put it away and I find that the creative process for me ends up being one where my subconscious sort of works on the ideas, even when I'm not actively thinking about it. So I find it useful to have you know at least four or five days to let the ideas ruminate. I spend that two hour period of time coming up with as many ideas as I can. And then the next day I come back and look at those ideas and refine them for another two hour block. And then I put those away. And after I I've done that for a few days. My, you know, between my subconscious kind of ruminating on them and then actively like thinking about them, then the cartoon ideas begin to take shape. And then I shift in editor mode and eventually, you know, how do I visually represent it? But that's that's how I've sort of broken it up. But I find that I look back on the rest of my marketing life and I never really carved out that a two-hour block like that in the rest of my marketing life. And I'm realizing like now how valuable that would have been if I had two hours of deep work, deep thinking time every day to focus without distractions. It actually gave me a chance to really engage with things because I find that if I'm in the middle of that block and suddenly, you know, I get to do somebody knocks on the door or something, I, it takes me a really long time to get back into it. Just on that, because I think it's a really, really interesting approach and, and completely sort of isolating yourself for that thinking time. Is that, has that just been purely since, you know, you launched Mark Tunis or were you even, so when you're working for different companies, was that just not encouraged process at all? Or was it, does it just not cross your mind, I suppose, because it just wasn't the norm? Yeah, I think it was a combination of working in marketing jobs where my calendar was just chock-a-block all day long. And so I could, I was hard to even get enough time to, outside of meetings, actually get any work done. Com- combined with the fact that several of those places, there were open office plans. So you're working away and somebody taps on your shoulder every few minutes. And so it's really hard to get into that deep thinking time. I started, I think that's when I first really realized I like to have more time for deep thinking work. And Occasionally, I would duck out to a coffee shop, find a place to work without the distractions of the actual office. But I didn't have that kind of built into a practice of sorts. And I find that, you know, to your question on worrying if I was going to get blocked with ideas, I find that I used to worry about that a lot. And then I realized, you know, somebody, a cartoonist I, I met shared the metaphor that it's not like you have a well of ideas and someday it, it runs dry that it's, the metaphor is much more that it's like a muscle. And as long as you're actively exercising the creative muscle and working on ideas, then then you just have to have faith in the process that if you work the muscle enough, you may have some days that are bad days, but if you do it consistently over time, have faith that what's going to emerge at the end of that, that your creative muscle is going to produce a number of good ideas. I saw that you'd said, everything I needed to know about social media marketing, I learned by drawing cartoons. Can you talk us through that? What have you learned? What can you recommend, I suppose? Because I think pretty amazing what you've done in terms of your approach and the level of virality that's been built. I'll mention to friends who are marketers, I was like, my God, fantastic, really excited. I get to chat to Tom Fishburn and they're like, oh, and literally the response from every single one was, he's a legend, he's fantastic, he's amazing. It's, uh, it's a level of notoriety that you have that I think is very unique. You make my day. Thank you so much. <laughs> kind of that quote came from a talk that I, I gave and I was trying to think about what I've learned as a cartoonist and how it applied to, to social media, which you know, kind of emerged as I was in the act of publishing a cartoon and trying to connect with an audience. And I realized that there's some aspects of the medium of cartooning that are really applicable. And one of those is the fact that the cartoon 
cartooning is inherently a serial medium. You know, you go back to what you find in the, in the paper, you know, Peanuts, for instance, was in the, the paper every day for 50 years. That's an incredible amount of continuity. And what that level of continuity brings up is that people want to look forward to the next installment. And I feel like sometimes in marketing, we get so focused on the next campaign or the next quarter, and we kind of change it up every year. We have a new marketing director that we miss the power of having continuity. And so I think of continuity being a more powerful aspect than trying to hope that something goes viral, for instance. So that, that's one thing I, I like to think about, you know, and what I've learned as a cartoonist drawing for the 15 years is people, you know, it's one cartoon may be better than another cartoon, but over the course of 15 years, if you have that continuity, you build up, you build up a reputation. And I feel like the same could be for brands and for social media. And then another thing that I think about is just the, the power of connecting with the niche audience. You know, for so long, marketing was, was, was mass marketing and trying to reach a wide, possible audience. And uh, I find, you know, cartooning used to be that way too. You have a newspaper that you have eight-year-olds reading it and 90-year-olds reading it. And the cartoons had to be broadly funny for everybody. But as the newspapers started declining and cartoonists started experimenting online, the ones that really built up followings were the ones that were very focused and niche on who they were trying to reach. And certainly what I've tried to do with, with my marketing cartoons is focused on marketers. That, that really couldn't have existed you know, 20 years ago, because marketers are geographically distributed all over the world. But the web lets us connect with niche audiences. And in and, and so doing, and finding inside jokes relevant to a niche audience, you can connect with that audience in a much deeper way. And I think that there's that's another lesson for social media marketing is to think about the deep inside joke type of insights with an audience. And if you connect with them on, on that level, you'll connect with them in a much deeper way. I've seen sort of a few of your bits fall slightly outside marketing and more broadly business. I take it your your focus going forward is is not edge too far out. Yeah, it's always a balancing act. <laughs> I, th- I think about that because I, I do. I, I'm finding myself now, particularly in speaking, speaking to more general business conferences, and I find what I often the lens with marketing that I take is that you know marketers are best tuned in to trying to make an organization customer centric and understanding what a customer wants. And so I think the lessons of marketing are, are relevant to any business, but I do find that if I go too broad in my material to kind of business at a really high level, you start to lose the inside jokes. And so I struggle with that tension. I've slowly broadened over time. When I started drawing the cartoons, I was working at General Mills and a lot of my early cartoons were food marketing specifically. And I broadened over time to marketing in general, because I think there, despite all these lines that we've drawn between B2B and B2C and different industries and Marcom versus more of a general management approach. At the end of the day, there's, a, there's more commonality than not. And so I find that there's enough rich material there to, to focus on marketing, but occasionally broad it, broaden it to the place that other people can learn from it. And what about in terms of format a little bit? I sort of noticed that you've sort of dipped in a bit to animation. Could you see yourself evolving and, and doing possibly more on the animation side? I would love to. I find, oh my gosh, I have so many things I'd love to experiment with. And it's always the trick of running a, a business, you know, as a studio and having a balance of paying client projects and then doing my own creative exploration. And so some of the t- things with animation, I've been able to bolt on to client projects. And those have been really fun to experiment with. And it's given me a chance to do what one of the things I love to do, which is collaborate with other cartoonists and other creative people. I've realized that I'm not the best person to to directly build the animations, but working with other creative people who are experts at storytelling in kind of moving animation, that gives me a way to, to partner and, and to do that. And so I, I worked on a fun, a fun thing with Google a few years ago. There was a series of cartoons helping introduce a new book by Eric Schmidt. And one of the cartoons we 
we we we blew out into a, a you know just a 15 second animation, but they used it as a pre-roll ad on YouTube, and that was really exciting to see how you could do that. And then I've since exper ex experimented with slightly longer animations up to a minute, and then I've done longer form three to five minute animations, and that the that whiteboard style of you know drawing really you know drawing over the course of a day, and then they speed it up to five minutes, and there's a voiceover to it. And so I get really excited about experimenting there. I just uh, it's always a, a challenge trying to trying to prioritize. And you mentioned there about I suppose um, working with with other people on sort of a similar thinking. Are there sort of other marketers or creatives that I suppose give you inspiration that you, you take a lot from their work or, or their ideas or thinking or writing? De definitely, I meet a lot of people at, at conferences and I love hearing their stories, both from the marketing side and from the creative side. Probably the one I get the most inspiration from is a, is a guy in, in Wales named David Hyatt who started Howie's years ago and then more recently Hyatt Denim with his wife Claire. Uh, they started the Do Lectures, which is a conference, and they're very open about the whole process of being entrepreneurial and how to editor. They, they're very transparent about the, the ups and downs and what they struggle with. And I learn a tremendous amount from them. They're very thoughtful about the process and where they want to take things and how sometimes it's it's hard. And so that that's an example. I love finding brands that, um, I love challenger brands in particular, you know, brands that don't have the resources, so they have to use creativity as a way to level the playing field. Yeah, I find I learned a lot. I learn a lot from challenger brands like that. Just going over some of um, your most sort of, I suppose, famous quotes, if you like. The one you're most commonly cited for is, "The best marketing doesn't feel like marketing." Can you sort of, I suppose, explain your words? What what you mean exactly with that? Yeah, I think it, it touches a little bit to some of the things I've learned about. I told some of what we were talking about earlier with with content marketing. I I started realizing early on as I was working in marketing and drawing a cartoon once a week, just how grateful I was to have discover that there's an audience that actually wanted to read what I had to say. And I really thought of what I was doing as a privilege. That you know, it's a privilege that people actually want to hear what you have to say. And I find that when you're creating something with a real understanding of gratitude that it is a privilege you're trying to you're trying to create something that where you know I was connecting with this audience I would often hear you need to sell more to that audience you need to monetize it and I kept thinking actually what I want to do is develop a relationship and have faith that in, in doing that over time it'll it'll open up doors but if I start to monetize it right away if I try to get all salesy I've, it felt very takeish in the relationship and I found that by, by having a patient approach, ultimately, it's, it's allowed everything in my life. I was able to leave my job and draw cartoons full time, but I, I deliberately didn't rush it. And so I thought about that in the context of, of, of marketing, that we all know what it feels like to be marketed to when a brand takes a heavy sales tactic. And I find that the best marketing is actually when you're creating something that has true utility to the audience that you're trying to reach. It doesn't feel as much as an invasion. And it takes more work and more creativity to create things that fall into that realm. But when you do that, when, you know, that's why I think of it as the, the best marketing. It just doesn't feel like marketing. It's something that an, an audience actually wants to tune into in some way, shape, or form. And that may seem silly that an audience would want to tune into the marketing, but it's, it's we can all think of brands that we have a close relationship with that actually we come across some form of communication. There's something that we're looking forward to. And, and as a marketer, the big experience for me was when I worked for Method, the soap company. You know, this is a really boring category of household cleaning products and soaps, but people loved our 
brand. And when we were doing things in the realm of marketing, there was there was such excitement and enthusiasm around it because we really tried to up the bar in creating things that just didn't feel like marketing, but ultimately they were, you know, right? Whether it's, you know, all the way through the experience, the shapes of the bottles, you know, how we presented the brand at live events and that type of thing. People really looked forward to the next thing that was coming. And I feel like as, as a marketer, it made me realize we, we don't always hit that. But I think we should aspire to create marketing that doesn't feel like marketing. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's certainly something that stuck with me. I think it's, it's, yeah, it's very thought provoking and gets you to just stop and think and just go, have I had ops? doing marketing by stop doing it right. I had a good watch of your power of laughing at ourselves at work, which I thought was fantastic. For any of our, our listeners that haven't had a chance to watch it, I'll, I'll include a, a link in, in the write-up, but it would be good for, for you to walk us through this. I think it, it is very powerful to think of it in these terms. Yeah, thank you. This, this that was interesting. Being asked, being invited by Ted to speak at their headquarters gave me a chance to think more broadly, kind of to your point earlier about my cartoons are for marketers. Is there Are there lessons there for a broader audience? And this gave me a chance to really think about that. And I I took a step back and really thought about the role of that humor plays and it's so often overlooked in business but yet it can be incredibly powerful and that's certainly been the case in my own career but as I started to talk to people I realized just how powerful humor could be but also how much fear was there and the light bulb went off for, for me over the course of you know many years speaking to organizations and I would often start off a talk with an icebreaker where you know, a week ahead of the talk, I would send them a cartoon needing a caption, and I'd ask people to come up with captions. And some organizations were really, really prolific, sending in a ton of creative captions, and then others, it was just like pulling teeth. And I wondered why there was a difference. And inevitably, when I went to the organization, I could sort of pick up on cues that there was something in the climate of one organization versus another, whether it was conducive to people sharing their ideas and, and funny in front of their friends. And I started to think about I think about that uh, disconnect, some organizations being able to do that more easily than others. And so I, in, in the course of the talk, I started, I played with this idea of what are some of the powerful aspects of humor? What, what does it provide? You know, a sense of belonging. It lets us be vulnerable. It lets us talk about things that are otherwise hard to talk about. And then I, I looked at, I studied some organizations that are really effective with it. And one of the ones I found was was Apple. There was a, an executive there named Hiroki Asai who used to deliberately start every all-hands meeting by trying to make everybody on his team laugh. And I thought that was such a great thing to think about it strategically that way. And he had this lovely quote that I, that I, I used in my talk and I try to think about it now, which is that fear kills creativity. And humor is our most powerful tool to drive fear out of the system. And so it was a fun experience giving a 12-minute talk on that. And I'm thinking more and more about how I'm, I really want to keep playing with it. I'm, I'm speaking a bunch more this year, and I, I want to expand this, this talk a little bit and maybe put some more workshops around this idea of how humor can, can be used to drive fear out of the system. Increasingly, the custom cartoon work that I do, is not just for external marketing, but also for internal employee communication, so culture type of work. And I've had a chance to work with a bunch of different companies trying to create cartoons to get people to you know to allow people to laugh at the aspects of their work culture that ultimately they want to change to be to be better and that's something I'm thinking is I think over the next chapter I want to experiment with this a little bit more and see where this where this leads potentially I've, I've even played around the idea of expanding this into a book topic but we'll see yeah I think it'd be really interesting I mean it's, it's ultimately it could be completely redefining a culture it really does penetrate in that way it humanizes something that you know I think that there's instances where where we can get caught between what is work and personal and who am I in work versus personal. And I think being able to, to add humor to it and, and to relax and have that environment where people can just be themselves and let their guard down, I think, yeah, is, a, is, is something that 
we should all be striving to do. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think it's really powerful. I had one experience in particular working with a financial institution in Singapore, and I talked about this in, in the, the TED Talk, where I, I interviewed everybody and talked about the culture, and, and I kept hearing the same word over and over again, that they felt scolded by their managers or by their culture. And I thought scolded was such a powerful word and, and led, led into a whole bunch of cartoon ideas around being scolded at work and what that looked like. I played with, with, you know, with an example of somebody being scolded like they would as a, as a student. And in the, the U.S., there's this metaphor of putting a dunce cap on your head and having to sit in the corner and be ridiculed. And I played with that. And, and they didn't get that in the you know, cultural reference in Singapore, but they told me about this other type of reference they had where if you misbehaved in school, you'd have to hold your ears and squat and sit in the corner. And it was this funny type of position. As they started describing it, everybody on the call started laughing because they all recognized the connection. And they laughed like, I've never heard such laughter you know, <laughs> on a conference call. And then they later sent a picture and, and they were doing, they were, they were posing this way to demonstrate it. They're all, they're all posing and laughing at each other. And I thought that was such a powerful metaphor. You have a bunch of financial executives basically standing up and posing like they did as grade school students. And so that was really, that was a powerful moment and something a lot of organizations can benefit from. Finding out whatever those, whatever that culture, whatever that reference is that would be relevant to them, but finding a way to laugh collectively like, hey, we do this. We create a scolding environment. And then when you laugh at it, you can talk about where you go from here. <laughs> Definitely. I really, really like that. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really, really enjoyed chatting with you. And I, I want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. For anybody who wants to keep up to date with the industry, everything that is marketing, you should be checking in with our 2019 best books to read. We'll be back very soon with a new edition. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast channel. Thank you very much.